At the time, no one knew this, but we have documents now that show it. The Air Force and the CIA went to Condon and told him how they wanted this report to end up. And the report ended just as they had requested, and that was that UFOs were not a threat to national security, so the Air Force should not need to investigate them anymore. There's definitely evidence that the Air Force tried to whitewash what happened. Listening to Widdishin's podcast, where we take the ultimate sci fi themes found in books and movies and discuss them with the world's leading scientists, engineers, and experts. This week's podcast is brought to you by our sponsors and preferred retailers, Wordery and the Book Depository. And the book whose theme we're reflecting on in episode two of season four is Eric von Daniken's Chariots for the Gods. Now, this book is a work of art and of monumental importance. The first book to introduce a shocking theory that ancient Earth was in fact visited by aliens. This world-famous bestseller has withstood the test of time, inspiring countless books and films, including the author's own popular sequel, The Eye of the Sphinx. But here is where it all began. Vondanikin's startling theory of our Earth's earliest encounters with alien worlds based upon his lifelong studies of ancient ruins, lost cities, potential spaceports, and a myriad of hard scientific facts that point to extraterrestrial intervention in human history. You can find the link to Chariots of the Gods in the show notes. My name is Amy Rose, and in this episode, I have a conversation with Robert Powell, who is a board member of the Scientific Coalition for UFOlogy. He's a member of the Society for Scientific Exploration, the UFO Data Project, and the National Space Society. Robert is active with Freedom of Information Act's request to various government organizations to obtain information on historical UFO cases. He's also the co-author of a book that this episode is actually based on. It was published in July 2012, and it's called UFOs and government historical inquiry you can find the link to purchase this incredibly thorough account of our history with ufos in the show notes dr robert powell it is an absolute pleasure to have you here i'm going to start with the question that i've been wondering of all ufologists how did you get into this field so basically, I got interested in this topic when I was a teenager. I'd read a book by a doctor out of Northwestern University by the name of J. Allen Hynek. And the name of the book was The UFO Experience. So it was written from a scientific viewpoint. His degree was in physics. And I was kind of enchanted by it. I thought, well, this is pretty interesting. Now, this was before the days of people talking about getting abducted and the little gray aliens and all that. So Mm. that's when I became interested. But then I shelved it because, you know, I had to go to college, get married, start a career, raise a family, do all of those things. Yeah. Well, then I was fortunate and I was able to retire early. So I looked at all the things I wanted to do 
And one of them was, I would really like to investigate the UFO phenomenon. So I began doing that in late 2006, early 2007. And I was fortunate in that some of the first people I ran across were guys who had really researched the phenomenon in depth. Dr. Michael Swords, who was a professor out of Western Michigan University, Jan Aldrich, who was an ex-Army sergeant who had gone to many of the National Archives to research the topic, Barry Greenwood, who had done similar things. So I, I met these guys, and we got together, and I kind of was the facilitator, and that's where I learned also a lot about the topic. And mm. I would say in the book, I was the facilitator who made, who kind of edited it and got everyone together and made it kind of come together. And Michael Swords was the guy who provided a lot of the knowledge. So that's how I got started in the topic. So you all got together and I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall. Oh my God. So did you regularly get together and discuss the stories and then look for the evidence or did you all just separately try and research and, and find the evidence and then come together? How did it all happen? How did you create the book? The way it all happened is I had come out of industry, right? And one of the mm. things we do in a lot of the electronics industry in the United States is uh, teamwork and facilitation of meetings. And so I was already familiar with that. So I got Mike, who was up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and Jan Aldrich, who was out in Connecticut, and Richard Thien, who was up in, at the time, he was in Wisconsin, and Barry Greenwood, who was in Maryland. And I got everyone to agree to fly down to Dallas for a, I was from Austin. Wow. So flew to Dallas because that's a big airlines hub. Yeah. And we had our first meeting. And so what we did, we spent two days and the first day was a brainstorm meeting. This is something we do in the high tech industry all the time is, okay, we, we brainstormed, mm. what should we do? And yeah. what we came out with after two days was that we should write this book, uh, more of an academic journal on the history of the UFO topic. And it's it's a lot like a textbook. It reads, it's factual. It's not something, it's not a science fiction book. It's it's literally facts. It's, it's copies of data that's been retrieved. And can you tell me, just for the audience though, what does it point to? I mean, does it eventually convince the reader that there are UFOs or does it give you that lasting impression? I just don't know. I think it, it would give the reader, after they've read the entire book, the feeling that there is something to UFOs, that mm. they are likely physical, tangible object, and that the government has investigated them off and on throughout history. But there doesn't seem to be a, a solid thread of a, you know, some government agency who's always been aware of it. It's almost like piecemealing as the government goes through history on the topic. And the book starts right after World War II, 
and the military and intelligence communities at that time, they took it seriously because at the time, I don't know if everyone realizes, but at the end of World War II, the Soviet Union and the United States were both stealing all of the German scientists we could get our hands on because at that period of history, the German scientists were the best scientists in the world. So mm. we were stealing them. You know, it didn't matter. Uh, I don't want to get, get off on a, a different topic, but their political persuasion made no difference. We wanted them and the Soviets wanted them. And so when these UFO reports started showing up in the 1940s and late 40s, uh, the foremost in the mind of U.S. military and intelligence communities was, is this a new Soviet threat? You know, had the Soviets learned something from their German scientists that we haven't? And one mm. of the first things we did was we interrogated all our German scientists. Hey, what do you guys know about this? And, of course, they didn't know anything about it. And the various military agencies, they were fighting over who could go investigate the UFOs, right? Because mm. that was like the, the new thing. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, the Air Force won out. They created what was called Project Sign. And then later that became Project Grudge. And finally, uh, Project Blue Book, which perhaps more of your listeners are familiar with. So when they wanted to investigate originally, did they, they had seen sightings and they thought that that was the Germans. So did they want to get access to that technology? Is that what the whole story was about? They, they thought the Germans had this technology there and they wanted to steal it from them? Actually, it was they felt that the Soviets may All have right. developed the technology using their German scientists ah. because the Germans developed the jets. The Germans were on the verge of developing the atomic bomb. Uh, they were the leading technical group in the world at the time. So we were afraid that maybe the Soviets had figured something out from their German scientists and they had this potentially new weapon. We weren't so much trying to figure out, okay, can we get this new weapon as we were, okay, is it a national security threat and what do we need to do about it? So that was kind of where the United States was. Now, by about the mid-1950s, so after about seven to eight years, they had pretty much ruled out that these were not of Soviet origin. So that no longer was concerned by the time you get, say, into the mid-1950s. Yeah. And then as the 1960s approached, more congressional interest came into bear on this whole topic because at the time, the guy that I mentioned whose book I read, J. Allen mm -hmm. Hynek, he was actually the head of the U.S. Air Force's Project Blue Book. And it was his basic job to what you might call debunk every report that came along. Right. And, and when I say debunk, it was because the Air Force, they were actually torn from within even. There were some Air Force generals that felt this was something the Air Force should really investigate, right? And mm. they didn't, you know, they knew it wasn't Soviet, but it seemed intelligent, and they thought we should investigate. Then there were others in the Air Force who thought, oh, that's a pile of malarkey. Don't even worry about it. 
let's let's stop investigating. So there, there was this war in the Air Force as to what should be done. But as far as the public was concerned, neither side within the Air Force wanted to air their dirty laundry in public. So of course. they wanted to keep it internal. Well, in the 1960s, something interesting happened. There were a bunch of reports that happened in the state of Michigan. And some of your viewers may have heard the phrase that's sometimes thrown around. If you see something that's not real, you say, oh, must be swamp gas. Oh, yes. You know, sarcastic (laughs) comment, right? That maybe there is something there, but we will call it swamp gas and discard it. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Well, there were... There were these sightings in Michigan, and there were a lot of people who had seen them. And uh, we're talking dozens. And J. Allen Hynek was sent by the Air Force to, to investigate. So he met with some of the local police and the townspeople. And he was trying to think what would explain these craft that they were seeing, because they were, you know, they describe a dish shaped craft that was very bright and was moving up. Uh, from the land. And so he calls back to Washington and someone tells him, we know methane gas, when it can sometimes actually ignite. And if there's a swamp Mm. there, there could have been methane gas that ignited. And so you would see this ball of fire move up through the sky. And so maybe that's what they were seeing. So, so JL and Heineck, uh, says to the reporters in the news media, we think it's probably swamp gas. Well, that insulted the community so much because so many people had seen this and there was no doubt in their mind what they saw was solid and not a swamp gas because there were some policemen that had seen it close enough to know it wasn't, you know, a ball of fire moving through the sky, that they all contacted their local congressman because they were so upset with the Air Force. Now, guess who their local congressman was? One of the future presidents of the United States, Gerald Ford. Oh. Yeah, so being a good politician, right, he doesn't Uh, want to upset his constituency. So Hmm. he goes to Congress and he says, hey, Air Force, we're going to have an investigation of this. You know, you can't do this to my constituents. And once that (gasps) happens... The Air Force, you know, they don't want anything to do with that. So they call in all their cards and they get the congressional investigation squashed. So there's no giant investigation, but it gets close. So at that point, this is the year 1965, around that time, the Air Force is like, well, this is a headache we don't need. Hmm. And so the one of the first things they do is they commission a guy by the name of Condon. They commission a guy called Condon out of the University of Colorado. And at the time, no one knew this, but we have documents now that show it. The Air Force and the CIA went to Condon and told him how they wanted this report to end up. And the report ended just as they had requested, and that was that UFOs were not a threat to national security, so the Air Force should not need to investigate them anymore. (laughs) And so that was what they wanted. And it it was about that time that J. Allen Hynek, you know, flipped from what you might say the dark side 
to the good side. And he said, you know, I've done this long enough. There is something to this. And I don't I don't believe that there is, you know, a, this is a figment of people's imagination. So he, he founded an organization called KUFOS to continue investigating. And meanwhile, the Air Force, although they said they had stopped investigating, they still investigated UFO reports. Because if you think about it, they have to, right? I mean, if you have mm-hmm. an object in the sky, even if it's a, a Russian missile, for example, it's unidentified until you know exactly what it is. Everything's unidentified in those first few seconds. Yeah, few yeah. So they have to they have to track everything, and they will continue track objects that they never could identify. So that the Air Force truly never got out of the business. So something that I'm curious about, though, no one knows. Like, there's always this question: Does do they exist and do they not? But I feel like the government has a lot of data, and I know that you've written this amazing book. Why is it that? They say there's, you know, there's no aliens, there's no UFOs, there's none of that. Like, it seems like they're clear cut. Why doesn't the public hear this story that you're telling me? If it's, you know, if it's in our face and we've, we've, it's all out there and the documents are there, why do they continue to la-di-da and swamp gas. It's Right. There's two parts, I guess, two comments on that. One is related to the media and the other is related to the government. So mm. I could be wrong on this government side of the question, but I don't feel that there, the government does have all this data, like you said, right? Just like this mm. recent case with the USS Nimitz, Right. Imagine all of the radar data, because you're talking about a U.S. carrier strike group. It is Mm. one of the most powerful armadas in the world. I mean, every one of those ships have radar. The planes have the radar. You've got EM data, such as uh, everything from radio frequency to IR frequency. For all I know, you know, because a lot of that's top secret, they may even monitor into the microwave range. So you've got yeah. all this information, but but it's the, the military that keeps it, right? Yeah. Well, what I don't think happens throughout history is that all of this information goes to one depository, and there's a group, for example, of scientists that that study it and try to figure out what's going on. I think it's more like, okay, I've had this information here, like in the Nimitz case. Well, that's classified. I will stick it in my cubbyhole, right? And someone else, the next time it happens, sticks it in their cubbyhole. Uh, And there's not a common thread. Now, that's, I could be wrong, but I think that's what happens from all my studying the last 10 years. That is so smart. Well, that's a great way to disperse it so that you can't ever follow the paper trail, really. it's Right, but I don't think that's quite smart. intentionally done. I think mm-hmm. that's just typical of a human bureaucracy. That's how gigantic bureaucracies work. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the media, you know, to your question of why, you know, why don't every, why doesn't everyone realize the the, the way that history really rolled out mm. is because the media wants something exciting, right? And so the media latches on the craziest stories that they can find. For example, there was 
a 100-page report I did on an event in 2008 that occurred in Stephenville, Texas. And initially, the media was all excited because there's all these people talking about UFOs, right? Yeah. Once we completed the report, which took us four months, and we actually had radar data and linking the radar data to witness testimony, the media didn't care about that. They wanted something flashy, right? They Uh, want a photograph of the little gray alien or someone who says they were abducted and taken to Mars. That's mm. the media thrives on that because it brings in viewers. They don't thrive on the nitty gritty details. There's a lot of nitty gritty details in your book. When I go on Amazon, there's so many amazing reviews on there. Can you, I don't know if this is something that you want to get into, <laughs> but is there anything in the book about actual alien? testing or an actual alien experience oh you mean like within the military or yeah like where they find one or oh they actually find a spaceship or something we we talk about that in the book i mean we talk specifically about roswell Mm. and and our conclusion on roswell is we can't find any evidence that that happened right Mm. there's definitely evidence that the Air Force tried to whitewash what happened because in the 1990s, they wrote a report, which was, once you analyze it, it was a pretty silly report trying to say that, yes, something crashed and those could have been crash dummies that were retrieved, right? Well, that's I mean, that was crazy. But yeah. we don't, you know, we think something happened in Roswell. We don't necessarily think it was a crashed alien spacecraft. I mean, my view is, and of course I could be wrong on this, but I don't believe that a civilization, you know, that's capable of traveling across light years of space is going to get here and crash their spaceship. And if they did, let's just say they did. It's the same way we would be operating. You have a larger craft in orbit, and the first thing you're going to do is go pick up your mess, right? Mm. We're going to try to rescue anyone we have, and we're going to remove the debris. Yeah. So I just don't believe that ever happened. Mm. And I had some questions from some people who are within the Widdishans community. One of them is because you're a chemist and that's why I thought this is actually a really good question for you about element 115. I don't know if this is the right question for you, but some people are saying that it's from an alien craft. Do you or alien oranges? No. No. Now Now, to give you a little background, When I was in college, there was no such thing as element 115. And the reason is that element was not actually synthesized until 2003 by a group of Russians and Americans. And they actually call element 115 Moscovium, I guess, Mm. in honor of Moscow. Mm. But here's the problem. That element, which we have created, has a half-life of about one-tenth of a second. So what that means is 
and that in half a second, if you made a little sample of it, 99% of your sample would be gone. And the samples that they created are at basically a, a microcosmic level. It's, it's not mm -hmm. an amount that you would hold in your hand. There are an entire group of elements from a hundred and I don't remember the exact number, 102 all the way up to 117 or so that we have artificially created. In other words, they don't naturally occur in nature, but you take other elements and in a uh, accelerator, you slam them together at extreme speeds. And for this brief moment, you get a new element created and then it disintegrates into lower elements. Okay. So, so there's, I cannot imagine how anyone would take Moscovium or element 115 and power any type of craft, right? And, and even if you have an energy source, right? whether it's element 115 or it's any energy source, it takes more than just the energy source to do what, what we see these UFOs do. In other words, mm. you could give us all the energy you wanted, right? It, with new, any type of nuclear power. And that does not necessarily allow us to do that. Okay. Well, that clears that up then. <laughs> So throughout the book, what do you think are the most convincing articles that you've seen that make you think, well, I think UFOs and aliens are probably visited here? Okay, so let me say when you say aliens, I guess you could say they're oh. aliens to the earth, whether or not, you know, whether or not they're truly ET mm. or whether or not they're us from the future or whether they're from another dimension or what they are, right? No one knows mm. because no one's ever captured one. The only thing that I'm confident in is that they are a physical reality. You know, they physically exist. They're made of mass and that they're intelligently controlled. The source of where they come from, all we can do is hypothesize about it, right? And mm. if I had to hypothesize and say, okay, based on the facts and what I know of this universe, the best answer would probably be ET, right? But that doesn't mean mm -hmm. that is the answer, if, if you follow what I'm saying. So you have to be open to changing your mind, you know, if you get new data that says, no, that there's other, you know, this is not ET, this is something else. Yeah, because one of the questions that I wanted to ask is, yeah, there's some theories that perhaps they come from under the surface of the earth, that something else is going on in there, or that it it's people from the future who are sort of spectators of the past. You know, they say you can travel from the future into the past and, you know, observe wars and all that sort of thing, which is why a lot of them were seen during the World War Two, I think it was. So there's that theory as well. And you mentioned that a little bit. So have you thought about that as well? Well, yeah, I've thought of those as possibilities, right? Of course, the problems with uh, from the future coming back, the things that make you think that maybe is every once in a while you get a report that I'll say seems credible where someone claims they were told that, you know, we're destroying our earth and we need to stop, right? 
So that mm. makes you think, oh, well, you know, maybe that's us from the future. But then all the problems with time travel, I mean, not only just the energy required and, and whether it's even possible, mm. but, you know, you change, you know, all the movies that have been made on changing the timeline. All of those things, you know, make that one seem difficult to to buy into. Yeah. Now, the theory of, okay, could it be someone who's always been here? You know, another a life form that's lived here, just hidden from us. Yeah. If, yeah. If I had to, of the theories, I would put that one in second place behind the ET theory. Right. And where would they be, though? If, if that theory was true, then I think the most likely place would be in the depths of the ocean, right? That's the one place on mm. Earth. Really. And if you, you have to take into account, if this is an intelligence, it's capable of hiding from us if it so chooses, right? Yeah. Just as if you took us and we were investigating a culture from the 15th century, the days of Columbus, we could move around without them detecting us if we so chose, right? Yeah, we could observe yeah. them without them knowing we were observing them. So, yeah, that, that's a, a possible theory. Yeah, because there's been a lot of sightings where just out of the ocean there's a an object that shoots out of, you know, and into the sky. There's been a few of those. So I hadn't actually thought of the ocean. But there's for actually some reason- been thousands of reports that have linked a an unknown object with the ocean. And we actually, myself and several other individuals, we have a project right now where we're working on that. We're trying to rate cases based on quality, right? The quality of the witness, the number of witnesses, you know, to try to say, okay, how likely is this given report true or not true? And then we look at the latitude, longitude coordinates of where it is on the earth. And oddly enough, there are two areas which when you look at the world map visually have an unusually high number of sightings. Oh, where's that? And those two areas, one is Puerto Rico and the other is off the Southwest coast of California where the Nimitz event occurred, actually uh, Catalina Island. Mm. Uh, And, you know, whether or not now the question becomes, are, is what we visually see statistically significant, right? Mm. Now, then it becomes, I don't want to get too detailed here, but how do you measure that statistical significance? In other words, if I base it on population centers, in other words, how many people live in that area versus the number of sightings? Well, then Puerto Rico and Catalina Island have many more, well, let me, Take out Catalina for a moment because you do have Los Angeles in the area. But Mm. in the case of Puerto Rico, the number of excitings far exceeds the population that's in that area, right? So that tells you something's abnormal. And what are the sightings? What are people actually seeing? Is it just a ball in the sky or is it something you can see like an airplane? You can see the features and the... In the case of the underwater sightings, for what we're talking about, it has to be in, we're looking at objects that either came, the witness either saw them come out of the water or saw them go into the water or saw them moving through the water. 
or saw them like right at the water surface and there was no no land anywhere nearby. Now that that latter case I mentioned to you is is what we consider not as strong a case is when the witness sees it come out of the water, go into the water, or move through the water. So in those objects that they see often are disc-shaped objects. That's probably the most common shape of that type of, of reports of objects in the water. And so how does a disc shape just because I can, you know, if you belly flop into the ocean, there's a splash and it's just not, a disc isn't really shaped to do that sort of a plunge into the ocean. Does it make a splash or does it just, because some people say when they've seen what they think is a UFO, especially if it's flying through the sky, it doesn't have the propulsion, the evidence of propulsion and things like that. So when these objects are going in and out of the ocean, do they have that splash effect or is it just that smooth? Well, actually, creepy? there's reports of both. There are reports where the object basically goes into the water and it it never changes speed and the water does not splash. It just moves into the water and it's gone. And then there are other reports where the object is coming out of the water and there's definite, you know, movement of the water. So, you know, that always makes it difficult to analyze when you get two different types of reports like that. Now, we do have, we did analyze a Homeland Security video that was taken off the coast of Puerto Rico. This is not a disc-shaped object. As the best we could determine, it almost seems like a tumbling acorn-shaped object. But it's an infrared video. It's three minutes long. And this object impacts the water and we can detect a very slight disturbance of the water. I think if you visually had seen it, you would say there was no impact. But because this is a close-up on an IR camera, we could see a slight movement to the water. And in measuring the object's speed, there was a slight decrease in the object's speed as it went into the water. About 10 to, I don't remember the exact number at the moment, either 10 to 20% reduction in speed. But normally, anything that impacts the water should drop yeah. its speed by more than 10 to 20%. Okay. And so there's a population of these. So where there's a lot of people, there's sightings. What does that indicate to you? Is it they're watching us or and why? Where there's a large population of people and I get a lot of sightings, to me, that just indicates people are misinterpreting what they see. And here's why I say that. The vast bulk of UFO sightings are people seeing the planet Venus, a normal aircraft, a Chinese lantern, military flares. And so you only have roughly 5% or less of your sightings are real sightings that are difficult to explain. So if you just think about those numbers, wherever you have your largest populations, you're going to get your most sightings, right? Because since people are generating 95% of the sightings artificially, then you're going to get large number of sightings at large population centers. And that's what we look at. That's why I said Puerto Rico 
that that's not a huge population center, yet we've got a large number of sightings there. So you have to try to look into that and say, okay, well, is, is there some other reason why we have so many reports around Puerto Rico? Is it that that culture just reports more than, say, a typical culture, right? And, you know, is there something mm. different about their culture? Those kind of things you have to look at. Yeah, because I, I heard a theory a while back and I figured that if I saw a UFO, I would know that it's a UFO. But then I heard this neuroscience talk about the human brain doesn't allow you to see some things that it doesn't understand. And so it sort of blanks it out. You don't see some things. So I'm sort of starting to think now, associating this with the sightings, that perhaps Puerto Rico, it's just normal. So that's not something their brain can't handle. And so therefore they have an opportunity to witness these things more than other people. Yeah, it could be. It could be more in your culture where to them it's okay to report it, right? Mm, Well, I, I can tell you this. I've given dozens of talks at various libraries, and and J. Allen Hynek made this exact same comment that I'm about to make, and that is, if you go to a large group of people and you ask, how many of you have seen an object you could not identify in the sky? And you get hands go up, right? So let's say you get Mm -hmm. 100 hands. Yeah. Then you ask, how many of you reported it? 90% of the hands drop, right? So yeah. in our culture, you know, which I'll just call, you know, like the cultures in Europe and United States, Australia, the majority of your people will not report a sighting. Now, if Puerto Rico's culture is different, then maybe they report sightings. And if that's the case, right, then that means there's nothing unique about Puerto Rico. It's just that their people report sightings. You know, there's not more sightings there. And if that's the answer, I don't know if that's the answer or not, but I'm just giving you that example. Have you spent some time in Puerto Rico? And here's the ripper question. Have you ever sighted a UFO? I've never spent any time in Puerto Rico myself. I have never, I've had one sighting of an object that I could not explain, but I have not had a sighting of an object so close to me that I could say, you know, beyond the shadow of a doubt that, hey, what I'm looking at is intelligently controlled and it didn't come from here. I've never had that type of sighting. And the other authors of the book and the contributors to the book, did they have any experiences like that where they had seen something they couldn't explain close enough? One of the, I won't give any of their individual names, so that way I don't, Okay. Uh, you know, give out any trust. But one of the authors of our book, his experience came from being a priest and talking to, you know, in a confessional type uh, moment, Mm. um, military guys who had seen something and wanted to talk about it. Another author of the book, to my knowledge, never was like me, never had a sighting. I'm not even sure what got him interested in the topic. I haven't mm. actually asked him. Um, another author, when he was 15 to 16 years old, he and his brother saw the typical disc-shaped object at about 
I think he said it was just a few hundred yards away, just moving through the sky and it wobbled as it moved. And so for him, there was no doubt, unlike the unknown that I saw, which was just a light in the sky, his was a physical object he could see. Yeah. So that's kind of gives you a feel for, you know, what the various authors in general, you know, just to jump back to where you said, you know, how your mind can blank out. Mm-hmm. I can tell you, because I've interviewed well over 150 people in person that have seen UFOs, and then more than that via the telephone. But what I've found is is when you have a, a good sighting where the object, where there's no doubt in your mind that you've seen something that's just not explainable in any fashion, you have some of your witnesses, they actually, they don't want to talk about it. They just block it out of their mind. And the way you know it, that that's happened is because there's multiple witnesses and some of the other witnesses will talk about it. And then the mm. other guy that's with him says, well, I don't want to talk about it. So you have oh. the, you've got that subset and you've got another subset where they become so infatuated with proving that they're not crazy and that they did see something that they kind of sound crazy. Well, they don't sound crazy. They're just so infatuated with it that they put everything else in life aside to go mm. prove that they really saw this thing. So I know cases where guys or women get divorced uh. because, you know, they're going to spend whatever sums of money they need to prove this is real and they spend all their time on it. You know, they lose their job. Yeah. Now, I would say those two groups I've just mentioned, the ones that block it out and the other people that get too infatuated, maybe that makes up 10% to 20%. Most people just kind of shelve it in the back of their mind and go on with life. Yeah, because, I mean, it's just something else crazy that that's happened in their lives <laughs> because life is a strange place to be. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But there is a certain segment when it becomes clear that we're not the top of the totem pole. Yeah. That that's, that's a big, uh, what you might say, mover and shaker, I guess. I feel like you're the real life molder. Has anyone ever said that? You can't, you know, you've, you've interviewed all these people, you're on the hunt and yeah, you're looking through all these government files. Does anyone ever compare you to Mulder or anything no, like no that? No, no one's ever uh, compared me to uh, Mulder. I think I'm uh, I'm probably somewhere in between him and Scully. Oh, I don't know. This is going to be, I might actually, if you don't mind, add that to the bio, the <laughs> show notes. Because <laughs> I'm just, all the, the whole conversation, I'm just like, is this is this guy from the X-Files? Is the X-Files based on, on this guy? Okay, so I have another question. And it, I think this is going to be great because you touch on a few things that, you know, the time travel and the alternative dimensions and things like that. But if we go ahead 50 years into the future, what technology or how do you think the world will be for us in 50 years? Uh, you know, one way to look at that is to also look at how has technology changed in 50-year leaps, right? And mm. And the the thing is that technology is not moving up linearly. It moves up logarithmically. 
In other words, like right now, they say every five years, our knowledge base doubles. But Oh, I but haven't heard say, of the logarithmically before. Yeah, it's, what, what we're learning yeah. is, is it's just amazing how fast we're, yeah. we're increasing technologically. But go back to the year 1920, right, mm. and place yourself in that time frame. And then imagine what the world is, was like in 1970. So there's no no one, I don't believe, in 1920, not even Einstein, in 1920 would have fathomed that we would have had nuclear weapons, right, that could obliterate the mm. planet and that we would have nuclear power the way we had it. That was something that you just couldn't fathom. Now go from 1970 to today, right? Now you're in in my lifetime range because in 1970 I was a teenager. So I, I've kind of lived through that time frame. Yeah. And if if you lived in 1970 and someone suddenly put you in the modern world, the things you could not imagine. And to most of your listeners, this will be like, oh, well, this is pretty obvious. What's so unusual about this? But cell phones, for example, and personal computers, a computer that you can hold in your hand, which basically is what a cell phone is today, that did not even exist in anyone's conscious in the year 1970. No, I mean, other than on Star Trek, if you turned on Star Trek, right, they had those little flip phones that they communicated with, and everyone thought, you know, that's such a cool science fiction thing, but no one thought we would have that. Yeah. Uh, no one thought we would have a medical device that could attach to your cell phone and tell you about your heart condition. Uh, and no one would have thought that we would have satellites that had GPS and could track every last human being in the world that had a cell phone on them and know where they're at at every moment. When you put it that way, I feel we're in a crazy time right now. It's bizarre. We are. I mean, if you were going to live in history, this is a great time to live. So mm. where will we be in 50 years? You know, I my concern is kind of the same as Elon Musk and his concern with artificial intelligence. But I don't think that artificial intelligence will take the reins of power away from us. I think we will voluntarily give it to artificial intelligence and mm. just think about virtual reality, right? And it's like you can go live almost as, as that technology advances. It's like you, you go live your life in virtual reality. Yeah. And so at some point in time, do we start giving away our control of everything to AI so that we can all live in virtual reality? I mean, you get to live any life you want. I and can imagine that that's I, absolutely, many people will choose that. I know, and that's scary. And what happens is, you mm. know a lot of people would choose it. The question becomes, does a, a large enough percentage of society choose it that that becomes what society is, right? And the, mm. there's not a large enough percentage to run society anymore. Whew, that's scary. So maybe we better hope ET comes. <laughs> <laughs> I do because I heard I have heard that, you know, when astronauts went to the moon, they were told to stop 
dropping nuclear bombs and to stop destroying the planet. Have you heard about that theory, about that conspiracy? That what? When man landed on the moon, someone, they came back, someone up there had given them the hard word to stop dropping bombs basically and oh yeah no i i have not heard that theory okay i I don't really buy into that i think we stopped dropping them because we began to realize the uh, the harm we were doing to the atmosphere and you know yeah we we might be we might be smart we might be smart and stopped by ourselves (laughs) we hope we're smart yeah but you know we're there's a a very interesting paper a uh, sociologist wrote on the uh, ET topic. It relates to us because it's the question of would ET be friendly or an aggressive species, right? Mm. And this woman, her theory was that uh, in this part, I agree with 100%. I think most people would. And that is that a species would normally develop the ability to annihilate itself before it develops the ability of interstellar travel. And that's where we're at today. We have the ability to annihilate ourselves, but not interstellar travel. And the question becomes this, an aggressive species will likely annihilate itself before it ever reaches the stars, while a species that's not aggressive has the better chance of reaching the stars because it will last long enough to develop a interstellar capability. And I think we're at the point of, are we going to destroy ourselves before, you know, we develop interstellar capability. And by the way, we're not that far from interstellar travel. Yeah. And I'm really excited about that, but you bring up the point about destroying ourselves. And it does appear if you were looking at earth from afar, that we are aggressive. I mean, we're, oh, absolutely. we're at war with ourselves. <laughs> it seems logical to assume that we would annihilate ourselves because we're in pursuit of that almost. It looks as if. Right. And if today we had interstellar capabilities, which we don't, but if today we had them, Anyone else out there that we ran into, I think, would want to be concerned because we are an aggressive species. Mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. the interstellar capability I mentioned earlier that we have is very rudimentary. It's basically taking a computer chip, which has almost no weight to it, right, mm. and encapsulating it within a, a giant sail and hitting that that sail with lasers that would basically, those are lasers are basically photons of light, and photons of light move at the speed of light, would push the sail at roughly 20% of the speed of light towards the star Alpha Centauri, which is four light years away. So in 20 years, you could get this little chip that could take a few photographs, right, of, of a planet as it zips by and it could send them back to us and we would receive them a little over five years later. But that, that's, you know, very rudimentary. That's, you know, you're sending something that weighs less than an ounce to another star system. The thing is, though, that 
That's actually a thing that I think I read about it a while ago, the the laser being able to push the sail. That exists right now. And then the science behind it. So in 50 years, it's pretty safe to say that that would have developed to the point where you can use that technology to travel a certain distance via laser. At that point, it just becomes how much energy can you put onto an object to push it through space, right? Yeah. Right now, the laser powers that we have, you know, about all we're going to push through space at a high speed would be something, the weight of a computer chip. Mm. And I suspect our first interstellar craft will be little tiny robotic uh, spacecraft that probably weigh no more than a one or two ounces, but you can pack a lot of technology as we know today, right? In the yeah. one ounce object. Yeah, because I don't think you you wouldn't send a human until you've really nailed it. So I do think that we'll be sending tiny little bots probably to do a yeah, bit of investigation. Yeah, just like, you know, now we have these cube satellites, a little satellite yeah. that weighs no more than a pound. Yeah. Okay, that's, that's the type of object but it will be even smaller that we'll send, you know, first to the stars. I forgot to ask one question before we go. Did the amount of sightings decline after mobile phones became so widely used? Absolutely. And I think the reason for that is the way the data is collected, organizations such as MUFON depend on a person going to a laptop and filling out a rigorous report. In the modern world, most people don't want to do that. If they had a method which was better set to the cell phone, right, where you could uh, easily, yeah, like an app, then reports would go back up. But I think reports will continue to, to decline until someone comes up with an app that allows you to do a report. Wow, that's an idea I might dive into. But you'd have to have the the storage for the videos. (laughs) Uh, Well, that's easy. I mean, your cell phone's got plenty of storage in it. Yeah, storage isn't a problem today. Oh, but for the app to have, I don't know. Well, I might just keep that under the hood for now. Otherwise, everyone's going to know and someone else is going to do it. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, Robert, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm sorry that it went to, and I just looked at my clock like an actual hour. I'm sorry. I just, and I could actually ask you more questions, but um, for now, thank you so much for sharing all of this knowledge with me tonight. Well, it it was nice, Amy Rose, talking to someone who's done a little research on it and knows a little bit about what they're talking about. (laughs) Really? Thank you. Most people who are enthralled with this topic really don't know much about it. Well, I appreciate that. I don't think I know as much as I want to know, but maybe perhaps if you're ever over here in Australia, we can sit down and have a port in front of the fire and I can pick your brain. so much for listening to this week's episode with Robert Powell. Until next time, please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. Stay safe, enjoy the company of your loved ones, and as always, enjoy the rabbit holes.